When it comes to the subject of preaching, there is much conversation and uh, some debate, depending on what circle you're in, about how that ought to be done and what that uh, ought to look like and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of talk about a buzzword, uh, expository preaching, expository preaching. What is expository preaching? Well, it, it simply means preaching that exposits. I, I know I'm breaking a rule, right? You're never supposed to use the word in, in the definition. And so let me, let me break the rule and then not break the rule. It's preaching that exposits the text. That means it's preaching that draws its principle and draws its substance and draws its content from the text of Scripture. In other words... I don't just uh, come up with an idea of, uh, I want to preach to you about this topic, and I write this sermon, and then I just find maybe a few verses to, to throw in there and to sprinkle on my sermon. That's not preaching God's Word. That's preaching my Word and using God to help me out, right? And that's, that's not the kind of preaching we want to have. With that said, I, I think there's an unfortunate misunderstanding in our day that, that narrows the definition of expository preaching to only one form of expository preaching. The type of preaching that constitutes the overwhelming majority of our, of our pulpit ministry here at Christ Fellowship is what we might call consecutive or sequential expository preaching. That is, we preach line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. Uh, that, that, is, that is what constitutes most of our preaching. However, there's some in our day who think that that's the only type of preaching that there is. That's the only type of expository preaching. And if you're not doing that, you're not preaching expositionally. Or, Well, that's just not exactly true. Is it possible to preach expositionally and yet not necessarily preach something that's sequential? Well, of course it is. So there are two other forms of preaching that are truly expository if done correctly, that are not necessarily sequential. One of them is textual preaching. This was the preaching that dominated the, the ministries of the Puritans. This was the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon did not preach through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings in his church. He did not start in 1 Corinthians 1 and preach all the way through 1 Corinthians 16. He preached oftentimes one verse, sometimes even one phrase from one verse. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't just use that verse as a diving board to then go on and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. He would take that phrase and he would use scripture to expound upon it and interpret it. And that, that's a very legitimate form of expositional preaching, expository preaching. Well, there's another form, and that's topical exposition. Now, I know that in churches like ours, the, the, uh, the, the, the term topical preaching or a topical sermon is oftentimes just immediately written off uh, because they think, well, the preacher's just got some topic and he's not preaching the word of God. He's just talking about some topic. Well, you can certainly do topical preaching in a way that's not expositional at all. But I believe, and I'm going to argue, that you can do topical preaching in a way that is expositional. Now, I've said all this uh, to say to you that I'm going to do something very different this morning and next Sunday and that is, I'm going to preach a two-part topical message. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I want to give this disclaimer because 
uh, even though it's a topical message, it's still going to be very expositional. In fact, uh, I'm going to be turning you to a lot of scripture, uh, and I, I would encourage you to follow with me, but I'll say this, if you find that following with me makes it harder to focus then don't follow with me. Just listen as I, as I read, and maybe you can jot down some of these references. Uh, but I want to preach to you concerning the topic of the necessity of preaching the gospel. The necessity of preaching the gospel. And I specifically want to focus in not on what the preacher or the pastor does in his pulpit, in his official ministerial capacity, because oftentimes when you think of preaching the gospel, what do you think of? You think of someone in a suit and tie standing behind a pulpit with an open Bible preaching a sermon. That certainly is gospel preaching, and there certainly is a necessity for that kind of gospel preaching. But what I want to deal with this Sunday and next Sunday is the necessity that is laid upon every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a preacher of the gospel. Notice I said every disciple, not just men, women too. Not just men that are called to be pastors, all men. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a divine duty laid upon you to be a preacher of the, of the gospel. That doesn't mean you're going to get in a pulpit and preach a full sermon. But it means, if you want to take the, the word preaching, the, the verb to preach, what does that mean? Simply to declare, to, to, to profess, to promulgate, to preach. The gospel is simply to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that is a responsibility of every disciple. Mm-hmm. Now, am I preaching this sermon because I think that we as a church do a very terrible job, and, um, and I'm just so disappointed, and so I'm going to try to, to preach this sermon and uh, fix this big problem. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, one of the reasons why I want to preach this, this message to you in two parts is because as of late, it seems as if the Lord's really been kind of stirring some hearts about doing more evangelism and being more evangelistic and coming up with different uh, ways and and ideas of, of spreading the gospel in our personal lives, in our daily conversations, and, and then more, in more concerted efforts as a church to be able to share the gospel, right? So these messages are not going to be how-to sermons. I'm not going to give you a, a here's how you do it, though I think that's a, that's a good topic to consider and a good study to consider. A lot of people want to share the gospel and, and they don't know how. How do I get started? And, and there might be a few nuggets uh, within the, the messages that, that could maybe spur some thoughts and give you some practical direction. But uh, rather what my real goal is, uh, is to encourage and to fire you up and to exhort you from the scriptures to go out and proclaim the gospel. It's like... Uh, the old story with D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, many of you know, was a pastor in Chicago for many years, very influential American preacher. And he was in his office one day in Chicago, and some young men that attended his church ran into his office and says, Mr. Moody, Pastor Moody, there are 
men outside of the church on the street right now, and they're street preaching, and they're doing a very poor job. D.L. Moody says, well, I like the way they're doing it wrong better than the way you're not doing it at all. <laughs> Sometimes we get so caught up and we want to make sure we're doing everything right, and we want to make sure we're doing everything just, just picture perfect, that we just don't do anything. Now, we need to make sure that when we go out to share the gospel, we're doing it right in the sense that we have the true gospel. But, but don't wait until you finish your MDiv and your PhD and pastor for 35 years to think you're qualified to share the Lord Jesus Christ with a lost sinner. I want you to also notice that the title is the necessity of preaching the gospel. Not the suggestion of preaching the gospel or the good idea of preaching the gospel or, well, after we've tried everything else, uh, let's, let's give this gospel thing a try. Preaching the gospel is something we must do. It is non-negotiable. And let me say this, if you do not preach, and, and I'm not just talking about preachers in the pulpit. If you're not a preacher of the gospel, you're disobedient. If you don't share the Lord Jesus Christ, you're disobedient. There's no such thing as a secret service Christian. God does not call us to have this big secret faith in Jesus that we don't tell anybody about. But he calls us to, to, to share, to preach, to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're going to see, all the time to everyone. It should be, it should be a, a real characteristic of our life. And I know uh, this is true of me. Maybe it's true of you. There are seasons in which it seems like personally I'm, I have more evangelistic zeal than others. There are times in which I, I'm just very zealous, and I, I I have tracks on me all the time. And everywhere I go, every restaurant, I'm handing out tracks. I'm I'm finding opportunities. But then there's periods. Sometimes there are long periods in which I just become slothful and cold. And so maybe you're in, in that period or, or trying to get out of that period and maybe God could use these messages to help stir you up. I, I, I'm going to look at a, a wide variety of Scripture in our New Testament. And sometimes it's very helpful, and this again, as I said in our introduction, sometimes it's very helpful to look at one text of Scripture through a microscope and to zoom in and to analyze every little aspect of it. But sometimes it can be very helpful to look at Scripture from kind of an 80,000-foot view and to ask the question, what does the New Testament say about X, Y, or Z? And so I'm going to, to take you on, on this journey through the New Testament, and, and I want us to survey thematically the topic of the necessity of preaching the gospel. I'm not going to spend a great portion of time in any one place, but just kind of give you some some kindling to spark this fire that, that God might invigorate us to, to go out and to, to be proclaimers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you seven reasons, seven reasons why we must preach the gospel. I'm going to give you the first three today and the next four next Sunday. First reason why we must preach the gospel, the necessity of preaching the gospel because it is the power of God 
unto salvation. So, if you want to follow along with me, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. We must preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Notice what Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In addition to being a dogmatic theological statement about the gospel, Paul is here telling us what the gospel is. This verse is also a very personal confession of the Apostle Paul, is it not? He says, I, speaking of himself, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, we hear that, and, and is it not striking to you that Paul would have to go out of his way to tell us that he's not ashamed of the gospel? This implies what? It implies that there were other people who were ashamed of the gospel. And we live in a, in a day and in an age where we're kind of detracted from the newness of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, you understand that in Paul's day, the gospel was, was, was something that was very new and radically different from the pagan religions and from Judaism that had surrounded his ministry. That there was, you, you drove through, if you drove through the city of Rome in the first century, you wouldn't see a church on every street corner. You wouldn't see billboards that said, you know, give Jesus a try. I wish we didn't see billboards that said that today, amen? But you wouldn't see people, you know, walking around with crosses around their necks. The gospel was this new thing. And it was a message that was so very different than the philosophies and the religions that surrounded uh, Paul and, and, and the early apostles that it, it actually caused some people who believed the gospel to be ashamed of it. Why might they be ashamed of it? Well, because what is the gospel? What, what is the central message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is salvation, eternal life through faith in a crucified Savior. This flies in the face to the pagan philosophies, by the way, they're still here today, that tell you that you are good enough and you've got everything within you to, to earn and merit your own righteousness. And, oh, my heart just, just breaks when, when you hear someone, you hear of a story of someone who, who is struggling in sin and struggling with, with doubt and depression and, and their, their, their life is just a mess and then they get some self-help guru that gives them 10 steps and if you do these things, then you can, you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you can make a better life for yourself. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the very opposite of that. It, it's a message that says you can do absolutely nothing and you need to trust, you need to place your faith in an itinerant preacher who was crucified on a Roman cross. How did the Greeks take that message? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says it's 
Foolishness to them. Foolishness. They didn't understand. They had no capacity to understand the the message of the gospel. It's foolishness to them. But you know what? It's still foolishness to unbelievers today. I've said this before, and I know it's somewhat of a controversial statement. The hardest demographic to reach in America today are rich white people. Because you go up to, you know, you do, go out and do your door knocking and you knock on this mansion and this guy comes to the door and he's got, uh, you know, his house and then he's got his lake house and he's got his Ford F-150 souped up, jacked up, you know, sitting out in the front yard and he's got his three motorcycles and then at the lake house he's got his nice boat and he's got his millions of dollars in the bank and he's got his, you know, he's, he's living the dream. And then you you come to him and you tell him that, sir, you, you are worthless. You have nothing. You are poor. You are miserable. You are helpless. You don't understand just how big of a need you have. And you need to forsake everything. And you need to follow after and place your faith in a man who was, who, who was poor, who had nothing, uh, who, who, who did not have a place to lay his head, uh, and, and who, who ended his life. His life came to an end through crucifixion. One of the most shameful ways to die in the first century. And what does he say to you? He's, he laughs. Come on. I've got everything, he says. The gospel is just foolishness. And, and so, could you see how someone might be ashamed to, to go into the world and preach that kind of a message? But Paul knew that the power of the gospel was not diminished by the mockings and the scoffings and the reproaches of its enemies. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, period. And the power of the gospel, by the way, is not seen in, in, in its articulation, but in its effect, That, that is, the power of the gospel does not depend upon your ability to, to be so eloquent and to use wonderful words of man's wisdom and to, to decorate the gospel and dress up the gospel and to, to make the gospel palatable and try to preach it in such a way that maybe more people will accept it. That's not where the power is. The power is in the message itself. Amen. You will never faithfully preach a message of which you are ashamed. What are some practical ways that we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Because maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, this is a good point, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Okay. Let me show you some, some ways that this gospel shame manifests itself. When you, number one, when you have the ability to preach it and don't, Now, I'm not trying to guilt anyone. Let me just throw out some practical examples. Have you ever been in a situation where you were were in a conversation with someone and they were were telling you just how miserable they were and how awful everything was for them and they they were very obviously looking for an answer. They were searching for something. And it was as if they just, you know... It was as if they put the ball on the tee, so to speak, and handed you the bat. 
And all you had to do was swing and whack the ball, and you didn't. You, you did not share the gospel with them. Could it be that maybe there was a little bit of gospel shame in that? Well, I don't want them to think I'm some Jesus freak. I mean, I don't want them to think I'm just a Bible thumper. So it's just easier for me to just pat them on the back and say, they're there, everything's okay, you know, you, you, can, you, you can do it, you can do it. And you remind you, know, you can't do it. You need the gospel! But, but I don't want to say that to you because that might make it awkward, that might make the situation a little uncomfortable. I don't want to be, I don't want to come across as being preachy. Don't be like those who have the ability to preach the gospel and don't. Secondly, they preach, but not the gospel. They preach something else. What, whatever that something else might be, be it a message of self-help, be it some worldly self-improvement philosophy, they preach, but not the gospel. Thirdly, don't be like those who preach the gospel, but only in part. They, 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 they are selective in what aspects of the gospel they share. And that kind of leads into the next uh, example here. They preach the gospel, but only when they know it won't offend. They, they leave out the, the offensive parts of the gospel. Uh, you know, Jesus, God loved the world, and he gave Jesus to die for the world. That's great. That's that's. That is an essential component of the gospel message. But so too is the fact that he, di he died for sinners in the world. And you're a sinner. And that's why you need the death of Christ. That's why you need him to die for you. We don't want to talk about that. Or, or perhaps, you know, the message of, of crucifixion. A bloody death on a cross. Well, we don't want to preach that. that. That's just too offensive to the modern hearer. Remember, brothers and sisters, half gospel is no gospel. Sure. Lastly, don't be like those who mix the gospel with their own worldly philosophies. You, you know, you, you preach the gospel of Christ, and, but, but you, you, you add in the, the, the thinking and the, the mindset of, of, of secular reasoning, and you distort the gospel and you muddle, muddle the gospel to where... In the, in the presentation of the gospel, you can hardly even tell if it's really gospel or not. You ever heard a preacher like that where it's like, well, I think he's, I think he's trying to preach the God. I think he's a Christian. I, I don't know. It's just so, it's so muddled. Preach a gospel that's unmistakable. Preach a gospel that's unmistakable. Where, where they hear your message and they, and they hear you and they, they think... That is something very different from all of the self-help books and the 12-step plans. That's something very different than all of the, the worldly philosophy that, that I might find on YouTube or social media. This message is totally different. This is, there's nothing like this message. That's the kind of gospel that we're called to preach. But Paul, Paul did, he, he said he wasn't ashamed of the whole raw, unfiltered gospel. 
And I believe the reason why he wasn't ashamed is because he was intimately connected and familiar with what he says about the gospel in this verse. He knew that it was the power of God unto salvation. The beauty of the gospel is seen in its effect, in its power. See, Paul witnessed the power of the gospel in quickening the dead, in opening blind eyes, in unstopping deaf ears, in loosing lame tongues, in softening hard hearts. He had seen the gospel and the power that it has in the hearts of sinners. And he couldn't be ashamed of it. He's seen it. He's seen it. He's seen it with his own two eyes. He's seen God use the preaching of the gospel to do marvelous things and wonderful things. And so when you're tempted to feel shame for the gospel, think back and remember just what you've seen God do in your own life with the gospel, in the lives of others with the gospel. And when when you're in that moment, remind yourself that, that though you might have to overcome the fear of the flesh, you have a message that is the power of God unto salvation. And there is nothing, and I mean nothing, better for you to proclaim to a lost, dying sinner. The, the word uh, for power, it's, the, it's the, the Greek word, it's where we get our word, our English word for dynamite. And Paul is saying that the gospel is, it has this explosive power. It can do miraculous things. And so Paul says, how could I be ashamed of such a message? Such a glorious, powerful message. And those who are ashamed of it, those who despise the gospel, despise the power of God to save sinners. The gospel and the gospel alone is this power. Motivational speeches, life tips, all of these other things that are popular to the world will not get the job done. It just won't. We must have it settled in our minds that that we are going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to be preachers of the gospel. It's incumbent upon us that we preach the gospel. Again, I don't want to be too terse. But our thoughts and prayers are with you is nice, but it's not the gospel. I don't even know what sending positive vibes is. Does anybody know what that what that is? What that means? You know, someone someone begins to tell you a story about how sin has just wrecked their life, and their life is just in shambles. And you say, "Sending positive vibes." No, they need the gospel. They need the gospel. And I, and I'm not I'm not look. God has never called anyone to be a jerk for Jesus. So we don't preach the gospel. Uh, to kick people while they're down. That's not how we preach the gospel. And, and we, I believe that we can and we should get down and empathize and sympathize with even the struggles in the lives of unbelievers that are a direct result of their own sins. You know, someone tells you about just how their life is in shambles and you're looking at the story and you're saying, well, I know exactly why your life is in shambles because of all these sin problems in your life. But, but the response to that is not saying, well, I'm better than you. No, you can legitimately and sincerely, if you have charity in your heart, get down in there with them and, and sincerely grieve with them 
Even though you know that they brought these shambles upon themselves. And you can say to them, brother, sister, friend, my, my heart breaks for you as I see these, these calamities. And, 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 and I don't want to see you go on in this misery. I don't want to see you go on with these struggles that you're, that you're going on with. But, if, but because I love you, I must tell you that, that, that there's, there's, there's simply just nothing that you in and of yourself can do to change your life. And what you need is to repent of these sins that brought you to where you are. And you need to see and savor the salvation that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Now will they say to you, oh, there you go again. It's just, there you go again with your religion, with your preaching. They might say that to you. But we're not responsible for, for their response. When we stand before God on the last day, God will not hold us accountable for the rejection of unbelievers. But he will hold us accountable for our refusal to preach the gospel. So we must preach the gospel because it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Secondly, we must, we must preach the gospel, shifting gears here, because it is the precedence of the church. It's the precedence of the church. See, the early church had a, had a very phenomenal growth strategy. And they didn't even need to go out and buy the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church. And they didn't need to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to have a church growth expert come in and, and give them a game plan to how, to how to build their church. Do you know what the simple growth strategy was for the early church? It was preaching the gospel. How do I know that? Uh, because we have the book of Acts in our New Testament. The book of Acts is such a wonderful book. You realize if, if, if you didn't have the book of Acts, your New Testament really wouldn't make sense. Because here you have the Gospels. And how do the Gospels end? The Gospels end with Jesus ascending up into heaven and, and all of his disciples just sitting there in disbelief and in gloom and in defeat. And then you, you pick up in the book of Romans and you see there's churches all over the place. What's go, what happened? Well, the book of Acts is what happened. The book of Acts could, could very well be titled, because the, the title is what? The Acts of the Apostles. It could very well be titled The Preaching of the Apostles. There are 19 sermons recorded in Acts. Eight by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, nine by Paul, and one that is alluded to and mentioned by Philip, the evangelist. 25% of Acts is sermons. One in four verses of the book of Acts is, is part of a sermon. Well, there was a, a scholar who put together a list describing the apostolic preaching of the gospel. And uh, again, this, I think, has a primary emphasis to the way we ought to be preaching the gospel in the pulpits as pastors, as ministers, but I think this applies to how we preach the gospel in our day-to-day -day conversational evangelism. So, uh, follow with me if you if you would like. If not, catch some of these references. But let me show you. We're going to take a, a mini biblical theological survey in the book of Acts and look at the preaching of the apostles. Let me give you five descriptions of apostolic gospel preaching. Number one, it was biblical. It was biblical. Well, what do you mean it was biblical? How could they how could they preach 
the gospel when they didn't have the New Testament. <laughs> it was biblical, not necessarily in the sense that they, they preached sequentially and exposit, expositionally through Old Testament books, but it was biblical in the sense that they saw the gospel as the single uniting theme of all scripture. And they used the gospel as it's presented in scripture to do their preaching and their evangelism. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 and look at verse 18. This is Peter preaching. Acts 3.18 But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying that, that the gospel that we're preaching to you in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, did not just come out of nowhere. This gospel was that gospel that was presented and was preached all the way from the beginning of redemptive history. All the prophets spoke of this gospel. And now, in the fullness of time, Christ has come and He's fulfilled this gospel. And everything Christ did was according to what God said He would do. The disciples were surprised when Jesus told them He was going to suffer and die. But you realize they shouldn't have been. They shouldn't have been surprised because God had before said all throughout the Old Testament that Christ was going to come and suffer for his people and die and be raised again and then be crowned as Lord. Notice verse 21 of Acts, Acts 3. Whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things. What, what are you talking about, Peter? What's this times of restitution of all things? Do you have a you have a Bible with some cross-references in it? Notice how much Old Testament Peter is using in his preaching. The time of the restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet. Who's that prophet? Jesus Christ. The greater prophet. Every soul that shall not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. That was not new. Peter simply, Peter simply preaching the Bible. Apostolic preaching was biblical. Your evangelism needs to be biblical. That doesn't mean that in order to evangelize, you need to have a Bible with you at all times and you need to open it up and you need to say, okay, sit down and let me give me, give me 30 minutes of your time and I'm going to, to give you a Bible study. But it means that your gospel presentation and the message that you preach needs to be in accordance with what God has revealed about the gospel in Scripture. In Scripture. And you have a greater luxury and a greater privilege than even Peter had because not only do you have the Old Testament, but you have an even clearer revelation of the gospel in your New Testament. 
Secondly, apostolic preaching was Christocentric. Christ Jesus was at the center of their gospel presentation. Christ Jesus. There are, uh, there, are, there are many temptations to preach the positive temporal effects of the gospel as primary reasons for believing the gospel. What do I mean by that? Is it true? Is it true that there are earthly temporal blessings that come through believing the gospel? Yes, there are. Absolutely there are. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. The flip side of that is, Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to have tribulation in the world. But is there joy that comes through our faith in the gospel? You better believe there's joy. Is our faith in the gospel the means through which God builds our marriages and builds our relationships? Absolutely there is. But we don't ever want to make those things preeminent in our gospel presentation above the person of Christ himself. To make that practical, we don't want to say, you need to come and be a Christian so that you can get your love life in order. You need to come and be a Christian so that you can get your finances in order. You need to come and be a Christian because that's just, it's such a wonderful thing to do. It's so happy to be a Christian. That's why you need to come and be a Christian. No, we, we, must, we must preach a gospel that says, you need to come and be a Christian because Christ, because Christ is worthy. Because he is the satisfaction of your soul. You come to faith in the gospel because you want Jesus. Not just all the things Jesus can do in your life. And so their preaching was Christocentric. Let me give you three things they emphasized. In Acts 2.36, we see they emphasized the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ. (laughs) Acts 2.36 Peter, on the day of Pentecost, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Notice that this is a declaration, not an invitation. God did not call you to go out and ask people to make Jesus the Lord of of their lives. Jesus is the Lord of their lives whether they are obedient and submissive to his lordship or whether they rebel and kick against his lordship, the fact that he is Lord is not negotiable. So we don't go out and say, would you please make Jesus the Lord of your life? No, we go out and say, Jesus is Lord and you need to submit to his lordship. You need to realize his lordship. And, and, and the truth is you will realize his lordship. You'll either realize it now by grace, through faith, and you will come to lovingly submit to King Jesus, or on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They preach the Lordship of Christ. Now, why, why do I emphasize this? Because what does our society hate more than anything? We don't want a boss. We don't want a Lord. We don't want to be in subjection. We, we, we are a society that just prides itself and idolizes a, a rugged Selfish individualism. So much of, of you know, the, the resist, resist, resist culture that we live in. And I'm not getting, I'm not getting political at all. I'm simply saying to you that that's a, a mindset that, that's counterintuitive to true Christianity. We, we have a Lord. We have a God. We have a King that we are to submit to. 
They emphasize the lordship of Christ. So don't, don't be ashamed to, to declare the lordship of Christ. And Jesus was not ashamed to declare his own lordship. Jehovah was not ashamed to declare the lordship of Christ. He says, in, in the Psalms, he says he holds them in derision who think that their puny little earthly empires uh, have true sovereignty. He says, you have nothing. I am the Lord. I have set my king on my holy hill. And so we go into the world and we say, Jesus is Lord and you need to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. They emphasize the lordship of Christ. Secondly, they emphasize the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. If, if all we have is a Jesus who is a great teacher, we don't have salvation. If all we have is a Jesus who is a good man, we don't have salvation. If all we have is a Jesus who is an example on how to treat one another, we don't have salvation. He is those things, but he's so much more. He is a savior who was crucified, buried, and raised again the third day. Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. And Paul, as his manner was, that's important for us, because it tells us this is just what he did. This was his custom. What Paul is doing in Acts 17, 2 and 3 is not unusual. And Paul, as his manner was, went into unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them. Now notice this common theme, out of the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. He reasoned with them out of the Old Testament, opening and alleging. That, that word alleging in the King James, I don't know what it is in other versions, but that word alleging, you know what it means? It means to argue with the use of evidence. Opening and alleging. So it's like Paul has his Bible and he says, I'm going to prove the, resurrection, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Exhibit A, Isaiah 53. Exhibit A, you know, uh, Genesis 22 as we heard in our consecutive reading of Scripture, points to the crucifixion of Christ. The ram caught in a thicket. When Jehovah says, I will make, not I will uh, give you a ram, I'll provide myself a ram. So he opens and alleges that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So he emphasizes Jesus Christ as a crucified and resurrected Savior. Thirdly, they emphasize the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. See, the truth is, in our day and age, preaching the gospel will not get you in much trouble, so long as you have acceptance and toleration for every other religion and ideology out there. If you say, well, Jesus is... is my Savior, and he's, and he's good for me, but you know, whatever you do is what you do. You're not going to ruffle too many feathers. But I want you to understand, that's not what the apostle said. That's not, that's not what, what the message was in the apostolic preaching of the gospel. Acts 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. Islam will not save you. Judaism will not save you. Hinduism will not save you. Science falsely so-called will not save you. Atheism will not save you. Ben Shapiro will not save you. Jordan Peterson will not save you. Donald Trump will not save you. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we, what? Must be saved. That's right. No other name. The exclusivity of Christ. So their preaching was Christocentric. Thirdly, 
Apostolic gospel preaching stressed the need of faith and repentance. In Acts 10 and verse 43, Acts 10 and verse 43 To him, give all the prophets witness. Again, we see the apostles mentioning the scriptures. It's amazing. To him, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive the remission of sins. And then in Acts 17 and verse 30, that's Acts 10, 43. And then in Acts 17 and verse 30, we see and the times... This is Paul and Mars Hill. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Mm-hmm. What, what are we supposed to understand from this? Gospel preaching, your preaching, should be a preaching that demands a response from, from your hearer. Mm-hmm. We sometimes will present the gospel and we'll, we'll present the facts of the gospel. God sent his son to die on the cross and Jesus was crucified and buried and he rose again and he ascended the third day so that anyone who believes on him could have life. But we don't do that next step. What's that next step? That next step is to look them in the eye and say, what about you? What will you do with Jesus? Uh, look, there's a fine line between a hostage situation and a sermon. I'm not saying that we should... Uh, pin them down and tie them up until they make a decision. But I am saying that part of our gospel preaching should be beseeching them and, and imploring them to place their faith and repent and come to Christ for salvation. And, and you know, there's nothing wrong with us expressing our desire for them to do that. I, to say to them, Listen, I've just shared these things about Christ with you because I love you. And because I, I, I don't want to see you go on living this life of sin. And I certainly do not want to see you going into eternal destruction because of your sins. Nothing would bring me more joy than, than to see you come to, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that from you. Paul had no problem saying, my heart's desire... And my prayer to God for Israel is that what? They might be saved. Sinner, my desire for you, the desire of my heart for you is that you would be saved. This isn't about me being right or this isn't about me just just forcing my ideologies on you. I have a love for you and I want you to be saved. And so as we proclaim the gospel and preach the gospel, we want to put their heart at a crossroads and force them to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. Not, okay, now here's the message. Would you walk an aisle and pray this prayer after me? You know, I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to pray. And if you want to pray these words, squeeze my hand and God will know you're squeezing my hand. We're we're not called to do those type of tricks to to sneak them in. But we are called to, to, to force a I think in the right biblical sense of the word, to force a decision upon their heart. Choose you this day. What will you do with Christ? You must decide. Fourth, they preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. I I need 
I am very aware of my need for the Holy Spirit every time I get in this pulpit. But there is just as much a need for the Holy Spirit every time you share the gospel. Every time you share the gospel. Notice how this looks in Acts 4 and verse 31. Acts 4 and verse 31. And when they had prayed, that's important. You really, you don't need to uh, talk to sinners about God until you first talk to God about sinners. Right. And, and, uh, how do we receive the filling of the Holy Spirit? How, how do we receive His power upon our lives and our ministry? Through the means of prayer. It's one of the chief means through which the Holy Spirit begins to work in power in our lives. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. Amen. You say, I can't share the gospel. I'm too afraid. I'm too embarrassed. I I don't know the words to say. You're right. You can't do it. That's why you need the Spirit of God at work in you, empowering you, giving you the courage and the ability to do something for the glory of Christ. Fifthly, apostolic preaching was passionate and bold. We see it here in Acts 4 and verse 31. We also see it. I'll I'll just show you two places we see it. One of them is Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 and verse 36. I've already quoted this verse to you. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus. Notice this. Think about this. That you have crucified. That's boldness, brother. That's holy boldness. I mean, he's going up to the very Jews that crucified Jesus and he's preaching to them and saying to them, you crucified him and he's the Lord. Now, when they heard this, verse 37, they were pricked in their heart. They were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter, to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Again, God is not calling us to be jerks for Jesus, to say things just for some sort of shock value response. But we must pray that God would give us holy boldness not to mince words, not to play around, not to skirt around the reality, but just as true as it was when Peter said it, it's just as true today that unbelievers today that go on in their rejection of Christ are just as guilty as the ones who put him on that cross 2,000 years ago. Luther said, all of us, by our sins, carry around in our pockets the hammer and the nails that held him to the cross. He was crucified for you because of your sins. You put him on that cross. And may God use bold gospel preaching to prick the hearts of unbelievers so that they say, what shall we do? One of the most bold sermons in the book of Acts didn't even come from a minister of the gospel, didn't even come from an ordained pastor, came from a deacon, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Listen to what Stephen says. This wonderful sermon in Acts 7. Acts 7. But let me just show you a snippet from it in verse 51. Do you think this is boldness? When Stephen says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted 
And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. <sighs> no wonder they stoned him. And he says, you have always resisted the Holy Ghost. You, you understand how bold it was to tell a Jew, you're uncircumcised. You're not Jehovah's. You resist the Holy Ghost. You've persecuted the prophets that he sent you and you have murdered the Messiah. You've received the law, you've received the word of God by the disposition of angels and you have not kept it. Oh, what guilt. What guilt. And Stephen did not shy away from preaching boldly. What we find, though, in apostolic preaching, by the way, and I, I, want, to, I want to be balanced. I don't want you to go away hearing a one-sided message. This is how the apostles preached to those who were proud and stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious. Does Jesus go to the woman at the well who already had a very keen awareness of her sins and and her immorality and say, you wicked, vile woman, you. No, he doesn't do that, does he? So boldness doesn't just mean uh, lashing out and calling people out, and but it, it does mean, as context dictates, being clear, being straightforward, and addressing the need of the heart of those whom we speak to. That's... The second reason, because it is the presidents of the church. And lastly, this morning, let me give you the third reason, then we'll have four more next Sunday. Because it is the prescription of Christ. Because it's the prescription of Christ. All four Gospels contain some form of the Great Commission. All four Gospels contain some form of the Great Commission. However, None, perhaps, is most direct and explicit as the one that we find in the Gospel of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 16 and look at Mark 16 and verse 15. Mark 16 and verse 15. We preach the Gospel because it is the prescription of Christ. It is what he has told us to do. How could we find a more clear command in all of our Bibles than what we find in Mark 16, 15? And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I want you to notice three components of this prescription. Number one, there's ascending. Do you see it? Go ye into all the world. Go ye. In other words, uh, if you just sit on your thumbs at home and just wait for sinners to come to you, you're not going to be able to obey this commission. It's one of the reasons why I think our corporate times of public evangelism are absolutely essential. This might come as, a, as a, just a shock. Sunday morning is not the time for evangelizing the lost. Now, if by, the, if by the providence of God an unbeliever comes into our assembly, we're going to preach the gospel, and, and we're going to see some reasons next Sunday uh, for why we must preach the gospel, not just to unbelievers, but why we as Christians have a strong need of the gospel, no matter how long we've been believing in it and walking with the Lord. 
And if by the providence of God, an unbeliever comes into our assembly, we pray they'd hear the gospel. We pray that God would save them. But evangelizing the lost is not the primary means of what we do on Sunday mornings. What we do on Sunday mornings is receive teaching and training and grace and edification so that we can go out and be obedient to what Jesus has commissioned us to do. And for the same reason, uh, you know, uh, a riveting sermon on the doctrine of election is not what we're going to preach on the street corner. (laughs) Somebody should have shouted amen. (laughs) We're not going to, you know, get into the age-old lapsarian debate at Walmart in the parking lot. Because when we go out into all the world, we're going to preach the gospel, the message of salvation by Jesus Christ. I don't, I, I don't care what their doctrine of baptism is. I want them to hear the gospel. I don't care what English Bible version they have. or what. what let, let's go out and, to Walmart and preach a riveting sermon on the majority text versus the critical text. No, we, we want to discuss those things here. Sunday morning, Wednesday night are our corporate times where the saints gather. We go out into the world We're sent by Christ into all the world to preach the gospel. There's a sending. Secondly, there's a substance. That is, the substance is the gospel. The Great Commission is not go into all the world and smile. It's go into all the world and preach the gospel. Listen, humanitarian endeavors, building schools, bringing water, bringing food, doing medical missions are wonderful things when they are subservient to the gospel. But if that's all we're doing, if all we're doing is going to Africa and going to India and building schools and providing clean water and we're not preaching the gospel, we're just making sinners comfortable on their way to hell. That's right. It's not an either or, it's a both and. There's a substance. And if you don't have the substance, the sending is pointless. But then there's a scope. Preach the gospel to every creature. To every creature. Don't don't let your theology that you don't understand get in the way of the simple commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature means every creature. Every creature with a reasonable soul no matter where they're from, no matter what color their skin is, no matter what language they speak, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, no matter if they grew up in the church or grew up in the world, we preach the gospel to them. And the sin of racism and prejudice is a hindrance to our missional endeavors. Why is it that oftentimes we want to share the gospel with someone that's just like us? Maybe that's easier. Maybe we can relate to them a little bit better. And, and, and maybe there's truth to that. But that's not the commission. The commission is come into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature also, let me, let me give you the other side of that. Every creature also doesn't just mean those who are overseas. If you're not willing to cross the street to evangelize, you don't need to be sending your money across the ocean to evangelize. 
there are creatures here in Henry County that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that God would give us the grace to be obedient to this commission and to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. We preach the gospel because it's the power of God, it's the presence of the church, and it's the prescription of Christ. It's the prescription of Christ. It's what he has left us here to do. Why are we still here? We're still here because Jesus said in John 10, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And I believe that uh, I believe that the day that the last of God's elect is redeemed, there's going to be no point for us to be here on this, this earth anymore. Mm-hmm. But as long as there are souls out there for whom Christ has died, we have work to do and a commission to fulfill. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us this morning. Lord, I ask you to take these wonderful truths and to... Um, penetrate our hearts and to teach us uh, about the glories of evangelism and sharing the gospel. And I hope that you would impress upon all of us our personal responsibility and obligation to share the gospel. Lord, my desire this morning was not to uh, guilt anyone or make anyone feel um, uh, feel like a failure or feel uh, disobedient uh, because they haven't shared the gospel enough. Lord, all of us could could do a better job of of sharing the gospel and could do it more frequently. Lord, my goal was uh, just to encourage us and to exhort us to be mission-minded in our day-to-day lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask your blessings upon us. Teach us, consecrate these truths to our heart. Help us to bring all honor and all glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.